Hey everyone, welcome to Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, unlicensed lunch therapist, Adam Roberts. I am so excited about my guest today. She is a food stylist and a recipe developer, Susan Spungen, and she's the author of the brand new book, Veg Forward. But she is a mover and a shaker in the food world. She's done everything from being a founding editor at Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia to being the food stylist on Julie and Julia and It's Complicated and Eat, Pray, Love. In today's episode, we talk all about using props in food photography. Things like people always think, oh, like here's a giant bowl. Is that good for your styling? It's like, no. How Martha Stewart has evolved over the years. I just think she's really rolled with the punches and learned to have a better sense of humor about herself. And the question I've been dying to ask forever about the croissant scene in It's Complicated. Yeah, it's no, it's not at all realistic. Not at all realistic. All right, without further ado, here is my lunch therapy session with Susan Spungen. All right, Susan, well, it's so nice to meet you. Thanks so much for doing the podcast. Sure, thanks for having me. Well, I am holding in my hands this gorgeous new cookbook of yours, Veg Forward. And not only is it beautiful, but I mean, these recipes, and I'm not just saying this because you're kind enough to be my guest, but like, literally, I want to eat everything in this book. Uh, They're just they just pop off of the page. Can you tell oh, us a little great. bit about um, writing it and what the inspiration was and how you worked on it? Sure. Well, you know, I mean, <clears throat> seasonal produce has always just been like the thing that drives my cooking, but I never have been able to like make that the subject of one of my books. So it's always been sort of the secret sneaky mm-hmm. subject in the background because, you know, people would say, well, seasonal books don't sell and they might be right about that. Um <laughs> Um, you know, or whatever, things go in and out of style and publishers have ideas about, you know, what works. So my last book, Open Kitchen, is actually, except for the fact that it has, you know, a meat and a fish chapter, um, very much driven by by produce as well, because that's just how I cook. I always mm-hmm. have. Um, I just get inspired, like so many of, of us do, right? You go to yes. the farmer's market, you see some gorgeous thing, and you're like, want to figure out, you know, how you can make that the centerpiece of your meal. Um, I think what I really wanted to do is to help people figure out what to do when they saw snap peas or fennel or whatever, whatever it is in the market or even in the supermarket and just um, be more inspired than just, you know, let's roast the vegetable and, you know, get a few more little creative ideas of ways to use things. Um, So I think, you know, the idea was it, it really was to help people, especially people who maybe belong to a CSA when they're like, what the heck do I do with oh, yeah. Daikon or well, I feel kohlrabi? Like a, yeah, like a murderer whenever I go open my fridge door <laughs> and like those vegetables are all wilted and dead because I, did, I couldn't figure out what to do with them. So a book like this is really helpful. So I really. Yeah, I mean, to be it. honest, there's only one kohlrabi and one Daikon recipe, but there are a few where you could sub in uh you know, where you could use any root vegetable, for instance, Mm -hmm. in the, you know, the root vegetable hash, or, you know, like, that's a perfect thing. Like, if you have like a a whole bunch of root vegetables, it's like, make that hash, it's delicious, you could eat it for leftovers for days. Well, I was gonna say, I mean, I know that your background, you have a, obviously, you've done a ton of things in your career, but you have worked as a food stylist. And it almost feels like looking at this book, which I know you also photographed, which I want to ask you about, <laughs> like you were almost painting with vegetables. Like I feel like there's some like images in here. Like there's one with like the snap peas that has like all the purple in it. I'm trying to yeah. find it. 
Um, but it's in the beginning. Know, it's in the beginning. Yes. But like, um, yes, that's true. I visually, think, you know, yeah. It's funny that you say that because I always think when I make a salad, I think of it very much as a similar process to painting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because I did study art and I did study painting somewhat, uh, a little bit. Mostly I was studied printmaking, but I was a fine art student and um, I studied painting a little bit later. And I think about painting all the time, actually. I mean, mm -hmm. that's why I love spreading frosting it's just like oil paint yeah so, this is the no one can see what i'm holding yeah. up but i'm holding up yeah. this image of the sugar snap cabbage and radish slaw with buttermilk dressing but it's like an explosion of like purple and green and herbs and it's scattered gorgeously on the plate so you were saying oh. painting painting is your uh background so that's interesting yeah somewhat so i mean i i can't I think i can't help but to think in that way and um so in a way, this book really brings together seamlessly all of my passions, which is visual, the visual, the way food tastes, and also just like really being inspired uh, mm -hmm. to cook. So like, if you can get a purple Napa cabbage, why not? Because it makes yes. it so much more exciting to make a salad with that than a, a green one, right? I mean, nothing wrong with the green one, but yeah. I just think everything is just so much more fun when you get these really cool colors and purple seems to be a very popular one for heirloom vegetables. But I just, I go nuts when I see, um, you know, these snow peas that are all different colors or uh -huh. I have to buy them, I have to use them. And um, in this book, I had to photograph them. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you. So, I mean, I have an iPhone, I do my Instagram with it and I have a newsletter that I use it for. But like, these, if you hadn't disclosed in your introduction that you had shot all this on an iPhone, I don't, I don't know if I would have just been like, oh, these are iPhone pictures. Like, right. they're so pretty. So was there a methodology and was there like a secret setting that you had on your phone that made it no. look so good? <laughs> no, definitely not a super secret setting. And in fact, I have a, 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 I still have my iPhone 12 Pro, which is what I did the book on. I'm wow. due for, I'm due for an upgrade. I was in the Apple store not too long ago and tried the newer phone and took yeah. a picture of the same picture with my phone and that phone. And it's like so much better than this one. But mm. no, it was more like finding some light that really I think was dramatic. And there were actually kind of two places in my house where the light would at different times would be um, dramatic. Sometimes I would try things in this window that I'm pointing to over here, mm. thinking that would be good. And then I would take it to the other window and I'd be like, oh, no, 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 this is so much better. <laughs> and what I guess the thing that is secret about an iPhone is that it is designed to shoot well in low light situations. Mm -hmm. So um, so that worked in my favor because I was often working in a in a setting where there was uh, light coming in just from the north light coming in from a window and the rest of the room was fairly dark, but no matter what I did, it always looked cool in that window. Mm -hmm. um, if I hadn't had that particular window, I'm not sure I would have ever signed up to do that, but I had already discovered that light by doing with my Instagram. So I had kind of developed this particular style uh, on the Instagram, you know, like, way back when if you look back if you if you scroll the way back in my feed you'll see a lot uh -huh. of much worse photos in my in my instagram but at a certain point i sort of got into a groove and everyone's like you have to have a look blah 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 
And I just started to be a little bit more thoughtful and considered with my photography for my Instagram. Mm -hmm. And it always was about that window. So when it came time to do this book, I, um, I didn't really say it in the proposal, but as soon as we made the deal, I said, told my editor that I wanted to photograph the book on my phone and immediately sent, uh, a link to like, you know, 25, 30 pictures that I had already taken that I said, this is what it would look like. And she was like, oh yeah, it looks great. Go for it. And, <laughs> and then I also kept sending some pictures along the way. And cause I didn't want them to be like, oh my God, everything's so dark or I, right. I didn't, yeah. you know, I just didn't want any surprises and I didn't want, I didn't want anybody to be surprised. So I just, um, you know, made sure people were informed. I also, um, had someone I hired the one person I did hire since I didn't have the usual team was I hired uh, a digital tech who I had worked with on the, my previous book and who I knew. And, um, I just, she's great to work with. Her name's Frankie Crichton. And I just really loved working with her and, she just helped with the file management, color correction, especially mm. when it came time to like turn the book in. I didn't mm -hmm. want to be there like organizing everything for the publisher or saying, oh my God, what happened to such and such shot or whatever. Right. So I wanted to have, and I also just wanted to have somebody to collaborate with. I didn't want to do everything myself. And my forte is not like organizing things in Dropbox. So right. um, I hired her to do that and it was money well spent. And when you say color correction, I'm just curious because yeah. my my husband's a filmmaker and he yells at me when I'm on my Instagram because I always pump <laughs> up the saturation and I always uh, pump up the and he's like, it looks so fake. It looks so, you know, so when you <laughs> when you're on your Instagram, for those of us yeah. who are taking pictures of food, are you noodling a lot with those settings or are you mostly Not just much. a little bit? So I do actually I like to oversaturate just a little yeah. bit, but I mean, I didn't actually do it. She did. So a lot of times they didn't need much, but sometimes it's like a little more contrast or she has to maybe work on the highlights or, um, I mean, I'd have to ask her what she actually did, but they didn't often look that much different than the mm -hmm. originals. But, um, I do, I do like to make sure things are colorful, but it's not to a point of being like fake. Like I didn't right. want it. No, it looks beautiful. The, the things that are colorful actually yeah. are colorful. Um, yes. So, And it's yeah. interesting to like look at your pictures. Like, I mean, the other thing I'm noticing, and this is probably from your styling background, but like the little props of like, you know, like the little yeah. salt on the table yeah. and right. the like nuts or like the little <laughs> leaves on the side of the plate. So like when you're right. styling food like this, I mean, are there tips? I mean, this is a big question, mm. but are mm -hmm. there things that people who take pictures of their food at home could learn from buying your book and studying your arrangements? Sure. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, I think the real thing, well, first of all, collect things so that you have all these little props, especially little things. Like you're talking about little things. Like people always think, oh, like here's a giant bowl. Is that good <laughs> for your styling? It's like, no, it's all those like little things, those uh -huh. little like accessories that you kind of sometimes need something around like the food to make it look like it's a little bit more lived in and show a little sense of place and process. Mm -hmm. So um, I, and, and so you just have to kind of consider those things. And I would say if you're taking pictures of food to set those things up 
in advance, you know, you're not, you don't want to put the food down and then start thinking about, I mean, believe me, I do run it back and forth to my prop shelves while I'm shooting, uh -huh. but I try to get things in place a little bit before I start shooting. Um, so that I have a sense, so I'll take pictures with my phone because that's how I can see how it's looking. Mm -hmm. Um, with the accessories and the props, I'll try some different things and then, uh, and then I'll go and start to make the food. And this is all at a sep usually, usually at a separate time than when I developed the recipe. Every once in a while I would develop the recipe if it, especially it was a simple one. And then I would um, get the shot right then mm -hmm. and there on my first try, but Got very it. free, but I didn't usually kind of put that kind of pressure on myself. Mostly I would focus on recipes and then I would focus on shooting that recipe. Um, not like all at once, like you would do with a normal cookbook later. Mm -hmm. The whole idea was to shoot things when they were in season. So, um, but a day or two or a week or two after I had finished working on the recipe, then I'd say, well, now I have to shoot this recipe. So Got it. then I, I would shoot it while everything was still in season. And also I had like, I would still shoot it even on the day I would develop it just to get an idea of what it would look like or mm -hmm. maybe what the challenges were and making it look appetizing. Yeah. And, um, and then I would go back and just kind of improve on that. Uh, there's a couple that I shot like multiple times and that was kind of a wonderful thing too. Cause I, you know, no matter what, when you shoot your own cookbook or if you're like me styling someone else's cookbook, <clears throat> there are always like regrets, like wish I had done this or I wish I had done that. And I wish I had um, time to shoot that again. Right. That's interesting. So, so it's, it's, it's different when thing. you're own. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, I don't like that yet. I'm going to yeah. shoot it again. <laughs> and you know, I mean, when it's your own thing, you know what you intended it for, for it to look like. Whereas if it's somebody else's book, you might not be completely right. in sync. Um, exactly. Well, Susan, I could ask you about this forever, but the time has come to ask you, uh, what did you have for lunch today? What did I have for lunch today? I actually had um, a variation on something from the book, which is okay. the, um, uh, what is it called? The French vegetable salad with pickled shallot vinaigrette, but it's not an exact recipe, but that is a variation of a lunch salad that I have almost every day. I'm a big fan of a big salad. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, especially this time of year, I eat a lot of soup in the winter for lunch because I like to, I like having some meal prep because I don't like to spend too much time thinking about lunch, but I do eat lunch at home almost mm -hmm. every day. So I had a salad that had some arugula and some kale and, some slivered snap peas and some uh, shaved fennel and some grated beets. I love grated raw beets mm. and some grilled chicken that I had made yesterday. And uh, that's, yeah, that's about it. That was the salad. <laughs> now when you're, when you're cooking for yourself and you make a salad for yourself, are you artfully arranging it for yourself? Um, kind of, yes, but <laughs> yeah. not just because, I mean, I just like my food to be aesthetically pleasing just to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it just comes naturally to me to do that. I mean, I'm not just going to like dump it all on a plate, right? right. I'm still going to, I mean, it doesn't take any longer to make it look <laughs> yeah. nice, right? Well, it's funny because this podcast is sort of about the link between food and psychology, although I'm not, I'm no expert, but this is sort of yeah. my premise. And uh -huh. I do think there's something very interesting about what you do because you are playing with the mind 
uh, in trying to make food taste better. Like, like mm-hmm. by making it look better, you're making it taste better, but mm-hmm. that's all happening in the brain. So, I mean, I guess in your world, I mean, it seems like the visual is not just like a fun thing to play with. It feels like it's an, an essential component of what makes food taste good. But do you think, I that that's, think that's yeah. true? I think that that's true. And, you know, it's very hard for me to kind of say where one stops and the other begins, because for me, it's all yeah. just part of the way that I uh, experience food and also what inspires me to make food. I mean, I'm actually working on something right now that um, I just had like had an idea the other day. And I was like, why didn't I put garlic scapes in my pastry mm-hmm. and then make a quiche out of that? And I was like, why, why wouldn't you? And, <laughs> I, you know, it's like, so it, part of it's visual because it was like, would be cool to have green pastry and also um, flavor. I was like, what What would be wrong with having a little garlic flavor in your dough? And, right, that does um, sound good. So yeah, it does sound good, right? Imagine the smell when it's baking with the raw garlic scapes in the pastry. Mm. So okay, and the now onions. I'm getting hungry. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm curious. <laughs> so did, did you I, grow I had up? To and... Execute it. I had to execute it. I had to right. execute it to see if it would be good. And how was it? It's I'm just chilling the pastry now. Oh my god! Okay, so it's happening right now. But I was going to ask you: Did you grow up in a family where food was very important, or was this something that came later in life? Well, yeah, I wasn't like what. Yeah, people always want to hear that, right? That you learn from. You know, really, the truth is, I was like a latchkey child, and um, and my mom worked. Uh, both my parents worked, so a lot of you know to her credit she did try to get homemade dinners on the table but i was an integral part of making that happen really because well yeah because she would like leave me instructions and like, how old meet. were you uh probably i'm trying to think when i started doing that I, you know either junior high or probably junior okay. high and yeah. where did you where did you grow up outside of philadelphia okay in the su- suburbia Got it. So you grew up and your mom, I mean, what, what kind of job did your mom have? If you don't mind my oh, asking. Oh, my mom had so many different jobs, but at that time, okay. She had a, she had a health food store in the seventies. Oh, see, that's interesting. This feels yeah. connected somehow. Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, I, yeah, I did kind of grow up like spending Saturdays in a old fashioned health food store, like pre whole foods. Right. Wow, so yeah, I did have like, so she was into like Adele Davis and health food and vitamins and all that organics before anybody knew what they were. And so, yeah, I did have some exposure to that and she did, she did cook. I am, I don't think we would say she was like any kind of a great cook, but she was, you know, she did manage to try to feed us wholesome food. And like we used to have neighbors that where they went out to dinner every night and all they had in their fridge was Hershey bars. And I used to be like jealous. <laughs> and, and but, you know, my mom actually did cook like she'd make big batches of vegetable soup or um, I mean, we cooked, you know, pr- she cooked pretty much every night. We were we only went out for special occasions. So hmm. um, but OK, so but at that time she was actually working for. I think Western Union, she was like an executive selling Mailgram, which was like the precursor to fax and things like that. I'm, okay. I'm old, so yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't so have known it. Was, 
<laughs> it was, yeah, it was sort of like after Telegram and before fax. Like we had one of the first fax machines in our house. Wow. Like okay. it was like, what? You pick up the phone and then yeah. a paper comes out? What? I remember that. Like... I remember that being so exciting and faxing <laughs> things. Yeah, so that was very exciting. cool. Yeah. yeah, so exciting. So she just, uh, you know, it was like direct mail marketing. I can't explain what she did. But at that time she was commuting to like North Jersey, which was a pretty long commute. So she wasn't getting home until pretty late. So I would... I, at that time, I was definitely um, making dinner, more right. or less. And I didn't really get excited about it or anything. It just seemed like, okay, I have to do this. I'm just going to do it. She left me the instructions, brown the meat, do this, you know. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> so when did, and, when did it uh, click over into something that you actually loved? <laughs> oh, well, I did actually like it, along with my brother. We both, we did enjoy, I guess maybe getting my feet wet in that way made me um think well this isn't something difficult i can do it and i liked baking a lot so from the time i was pretty young so i would um always wanted to do like baking projects making cakes my mom had like one big fat like mccall's cookbook and i mm -hmm. would just it had tons of baking recipes so i would just oh these look good this is a good cookie this looks like i would make cakes you know and sometimes i would make substitutions and then not understand why the thing came out like a you know leaden <laughs> rock you know, right right it's like well, why can't i use oil if it says butter you know that kind of thing so i mean i actually had a lot of early sort of cooking lessons that i still remember from from doing some of those recipes and um uh my mom had like an old mix master which was you know pre-kitchenaid so yes. i would um yeah i just experimented a lot i liked reading recipes i liked baking i liked eating warm baked goods so I would just, my friend, and also in high school, another friend of mine, my best friend and I used to, we used to make cookies like all the time. It was just <laughs> like some, something that we did, you know? And so I enjoyed that. And then my brother and I also would um, pull out the old Craig, 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 Craig Claiborne um, New York Times cookbook. And oh, cool. I used to like look through that and be like, oh, that sounds interesting, you know? Uh -huh. <laughs> and, and, and was cruise. it? Was there a sense of like um, indulgence? Like if your mom ran a health food store, like were, mm. was, was like was some of the stuff that you were doing like a, a form of like differentiation or like rebellion mm. to like- No, not making... really. Cause she also went through phases. Like she didn't have the, I, I forget how long she had the store, but um, you know, we would still have like Entenmann's. Oh yeah, <laughs> even, I grew up with though... Entenmann's. That was my childhood. <laughs> my dad, we would have lemon coconut cake and crumb cake and Entenmann's donuts in the house. And I don't know why we weren't like 800 pounds, but like we would I eat know. that all I the know. time. Yeah. I, where did it. you grow up? You grew Long, up on the Long East Island. Coast. Yeah, oh, okay. Oceanside. So yeah, we used, I used to really like like the cheese Danish. Those long oh, yeah. like cheese Danish thing. Sure. That was one of the thing we always had so we weren't like super strict and like she used to say certain things were poison like fried food or like mm -hmm. we weren't really allowed to have potato chips like she didn't or lucky charms like there were certain things oh, yeah. where i wasn't really allowed to have it and she would call them poison <laughs> <laughs> and, and then he made you probably like, crave them even more i would imagine uh definitely in the case of lucky charms if i saw lucky charms at somebody's house i was like yes. they have lucky charms I know. why can't i have lucky charms i then love actually, that they're stuff awful. i they're know awful. but i still liked it when i was a kid i thought that was the coolest um so wait so when did you so you studied art okay. in college and then right and then after well, I, that... so I was I had an interest in cooking, but it wasn't like something. And also, you have to remember, in those days, it wasn't like a good career choice for right. like you're supposed to go to college and have some kind of career. I mean, art school doesn't really 
you know, count, <laughs> <Right>. but <laughs> they still, they let me go to art school. I didn't finish, but uh, okay. I'm a college dropout. Um, so I, I guess it was just little by little, like, you know, naturally I just gravitated to, those are the kind of jobs you could get. Like, so I started art school. I actually took a year off in between college and uh, high school and college, partly because I didn't get it together to do my applications. I mean, I was really not um, like the best student or anything like that. So, and you I was busy making cookies. You had a lot of cookies to make. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I just, so my first job was as a cashier in a health food store because I was like, hey, I have some experience here. And after that, I actually worked at a little health food restaurant at the, mm. like as a counter person. And because um, I was like, well, health food, that's my, <laughs> I have experience. Um, it's so funny and- too, because like this book that you wrote to bring it full circle for a second is like yeah. such an interesting contrast to like the notion of health food back then, because it was always so punishing, like the idea yeah. of like tofu and things like, like we True. used to kind of look at that, like, ugh, like. I know. I mean, it was kind of no, like it's true. Put down, but now it's sort of like the ideal. Like I feel oh, like in, yeah. in all the restaurants now, like they all have little little gem salads and oh, watermelon yeah. radishes, and so it's so Absolutely. funny how things came full yeah. circle. But I want to go back to your story. So it's let's true. Go. Like the store, yeah. like there were certain things that smelled really weird, or you yeah, know, I remember all I'm, that. Yeah. But then there was also like the fresh peanut butter that came out of the machine that was like mm-hmm. warm and yummy and. There were yeah. also certain cookies and crackers that I really liked in the store. So yeah, right. there were things that I liked and then things that were like yinnies. I remember these candies being yinnies that were like yin and yang, get it? Um, and they were made with, I think, brown rice syrup. So things like that were super like weird and homemade then, but you know, they weren't like big national brands or anything like that. It was very much the beginning of health food. Um, okay. So how did I, okay. So while I was in school, I started working at a place called the commissary in Philadelphia, which was pretty famous at the time. And it was, um, again, I just did, did it because, um, I needed a job and I wasn't trying to be a cook or anything like that. And I, I just worked on the counter slicing desserts, slicing charcuterie. So it just was like little by little getting my hands in food and Mm -hmm. learning more about it, tasting more things. Um, This particular restaurant had, you know, really great cooks and it was considered kind of revolutionary at the time. Um, It was like a cafeteria style restaurant and, Mm. um, you know, you could either come in and get a salad or the plat du jour, or you could get all kinds of homemade pâtés and terrines, and then you could have all these beautiful desserts and, Um, Or you could come to the back to the omelet station and have someone make you an omelet to order, which I did at one point. Really? That's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of um, It was because we didn't use nonstick pans either. We used like an old fashioned omelet pan. So you were like, ah. Um, So, you know, I did all of those things and I, I really just enjoyed it. I enjoyed being around food. So I think that was sort of where it really started. And then um over the next you know 10 years or so i'm not going to bore you with every single (laughs) detail of my scrappy start but i um eventually stopped 
going to art school, obviously, you don't go for, I, I actually dropped out in the middle of my junior year and that is a whole other story. And then I moved to Aspen, Colorado where um, I still didn't really want to cook, but I did cook one summer. I ended up cooking on the line. Cause they like, when they were looking for summer cook, they were just like, yeah, okay, go ahead. You don't have any experience. It's fine. Um, just go in there. And I have to and ask I you, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm curious about, um, it feels like gender is an interesting thing to bring up for mm. a second, because I feel mm -hmm. like in with feminism and stuff in the 70s and the 80s, you know, like it, it felt like for a woman to cook was a, mm -hmm. like a symbolic thing. But also the idea of like being a chef in a restaurant, it was a pretty, pretty much a men's world. So I'm curious True. as a woman, like as you were navigating all this, was, was that something that you were thinking about or was it not really very much? On no, your mind? It, it wasn't really something I was thinking about. And it didn't, I don't feel like at least at that time, again, because it was in Aspen, which is very much a resort town right. where they were like, just like now, like desperate for help probably in the summer because they had to hire all new people. Well, I mean, winter and summer, but it was a seasonal place so and summer wasn't like nearly as i didn't find that like uh, when i started working at this particular restaurant uh half of the people in the kitchen were women so mm -hmm. maybe you know i mean the guy who owned the place was <laughs> kind of definitely a swiss german chauvinist but he <laughs> right. was he didn't seem to have any problem hiring women so he okay. didn't know i don't remember ever anybody saying to me you can't do this because you're a woman or Got it. Uh, I, I don't remember I, I don't remember coming up against that and um and later when i worked at the pastry chef at coco pazzo that was like my last restaurant job and that was in like 1990 um Oh, well, it was. Cool. I remember that chef. restaurant. That's so cool yeah. that you did that. Was it Pino, yeah. Pino, uh... Pino Longo. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's awesome. So I opened that restaurant, and and then that was my ended up. Then I went on to Martha after that. So after that, of course, when I went to work for Martha, yeah, I mean, she was the best role model ever for you know being a, a woman, and 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 my mom was a good role model for that too because she was working. She was a working woman. And, you know, I, she would come home with her sort of horror stories about, uh, me, you know, men, uh, she had to deal with that stuff in like more of an executive kind of setting. Mm -hmm. Um, she was in a completely different field, but she used to like say things about it. And, uh, you know, where I knew she had challenges being a woman and I always admired her for just like, you know, being strong and going in there and working. And um, so, I mean, she was a little bit of a role model. I never really thought about limitations. Like I shouldn't do this or I can't do this yeah, or whatever no, I mean, because I'm a woman. It sounds like you found like a path that made sense for you that wasn't... Uh... Like, I mean, true. I guess like the world of like French four star fine dining or like right. Michelin stuff would have been maybe a different experience, but that's Absolutely. not what you wanted. Yeah. I wasn't trying to do that. I was yeah. always looking to do something that I felt comfortable doing. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even though I would take jobs where I wasn't really quite uh, experienced enough, I knew that I could just like think on my feet and learn. And, um, but not if I had, I wasn't like, I want to go work in a French kitchen. You know, I didn't yeah. want that at all. And I probably never would have gotten hired for those jobs. So instead I just sort of did my own path and found my own way. Which sounds like a great life and food as opposed to people who are like having pots thrown at their heads and being scalded <laughs> yeah. and, you know, um, I, you know, I, as you're hearing these stories. How, how, yeah, I mean, it does happen for sure. It's not, yeah. it's certainly not every kitchen, but 
Um, yeah, I was once actually at an event when I was uh, working at Martha, uh, where I would get invited to a lot of nice events. And it was a lunch at, uh, let's just say a famous French restaurant in New York City with a famous French chef. And it got very quiet in the dining room because it was like a brand or something that was doing this. And so the person was speaking and this chef, uh, just started screaming in the kitchen and you could, <laughs> and you could hear it in the wow. dining room because it had, it wasn't like the normal din of dining because somebody was giving a speech and it was like, Oh, oh, I love that. That's a good moment like to put in a movie or something. All right. I feel like there's so many questions I have to ask you. So okay. we're going like, fa to fast All forward right. a little bit. Okay. By the way, I definitely want to get to food styling for movies because that's a sure. huge sure. thing. Sure. Actually, I mean, okay, I'll save that for later. But I, yeah. with, with Martha, I have to ask you because I've been a fan of Martha's for a long time. And it feels like her public persona has gone through so many different iterations from sort of yeah. fastidious and kind of uptight seeming to suddenly like being on a show with Snoop Dogg and like, doing the Comedy Central roast. And now now she's like in Sports Illustrated. So like, who is yeah. Martha? Like I mean, you get to know her like in real life. I mean, which version of Martha is the real Martha or has or is that hard to say? Well, they're not, I wouldn't say they're different versions so much as um, an evolution, just like any of us evolve yes. and grow and get older. I mean, look, she's had things happen in her life and you know, like the rest of us had to deal with changes in, uh, you know, the the financial world. And, right. um, you know, like, I mean, no more print magazine. Hard to believe that would, that day would ever come, right? Mm -hmm. Martha was so identified by the magazine. And, um, you know, but when, you know, print is dead, right? So there's no more magazine. And I just think she's really rolled with the punches and learned to have, a better sense of humor yes. about herself. And she really, look, she always had a pretty good sense of humor, but not so much about herself, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think over time she learned to just laugh at herself and not take herself so seriously, even though she really, she does, believe me, the things that she loves, you know, I mean, she feels really strongly about things, but I think, I just think that, I mean, that's what I observe. I don't see her that often, but, um, I think, you know, she went from doing everything herself when she used to be caterer to growing this big empire where she didn't do anything herself. And now I think she's back to doing more things herself, um, yes. even because, you know, she sold her brand to a company, but she's still very involved with them. I don't, I don't even know the details of that, but, um, she's still very involved. Like I was supposed to actually do television with her last week on her, for her really? Roku show, but I got COVID. So oh, no. I, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, had to, I still, I, I'm on like day nine right now. You seem yeah. great. I had no oh, idea. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah. I'm fine. Um, but she, um, I had to cancel it like four 30 in the morning. Oh, like no. I had the number for the driver and I said, you know, I was like, I'm really, don't come and pick me up because I have COVID and I'm not coming. So he was the first to know. And so I think uh -huh. I have a feeling it was her driver because then she called me at like, I don't know, six o'clock or something. It was like, what do you mean you have COVID? <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to get a call from, from Martha Stewart when I have COVID. I that know. sounds kind of... It was kind of funny. So she was being like serious, but at the same time, she was joking, you know? Yes. 
She's like, what do you, she knew, I mean, she didn't want me to come up there, but she was still pissed that I messed up her day, you know? <laughs> and then I said, you know, she said, well, now I have to figure out what we're going to do instead. You know? That's so funny. I mean, she's been around for, I mean, I remember watching her show on TV, like in the, maybe the nineties or early 2000s. I mean, she's been doing mm -hmm. this for so, but you're so oh, right yeah. about her adaptability and how smart mm -hmm. she is about like, and how, and I think that's part of the pleasure of seeing her on the cover of Sports Illustrated or seeing her on, on the show as Snoop Dogg is you're watching this woman's evolution. And if like if it were a movie, it would sort of be a movie about like an uptight um, sort of like fastidious <clears throat> person who suddenly like loosens up and starts to have fun. And, you, you know, I mean, that sort of feels like. Well, she, my yeah, I mean, yeah. she always liked to have fun. That is for sure. She is mm. like an adventurer. She always knew how to have fun, but she's maybe compartmentalize in yeah. some ways like you know there are times to have fun and then there are times to work and um but i don't know i i think she probably has a higher share of fun now and like wouldn't you want to if you were 81 and still working have and more so fun? successful and just like yeah. have the world at your feet okay i'm yeah. gonna just skip ahead now i'm going to okay. ask you the question the million dollar question because it is so funny i have okay so i'm i love movies and I love it's complicated. And I know that you did the food styling, but the issue yeah. I always had with that movie, and I'm so curious about this, is that yeah. on Meryl Streep's date with Steve Martin, she whips yeah. up chocolate croissants. And I've always <laughs> I was like, you can't, you can't whip up a chocolate croissant on a date. That would take 18 hours for it to proof and rise. And I know, I know. <laughs> so I'm I know. curious when you were doing that scene, was that like, what was that like? And what were, what, what, what were you thinking in terms of the reality of the, what was going on in that scene? <laughs> well, I mean, that, that of all the scenes, I mean, there, the thing about working on movies is there are certain things that are scripted by the, by the writer or director, sure. in this case, the same person, Nancy Myers. And there are things that, you know, where they ask me, well, what do I think? And this was, her, you know, Nancy's idea, it was like this croissant, it was very much part of the, if she listens to this, she will kill me. She always gets, she <laughs> no, gets she's mad probably at not me. Listening if, to I, this. Yeah. yeah, I doubt it, but you never know. Um, so she, um, it was just part of, I, I mean, of course I said that, you know, you would never be able to make croissant. I mean, I guess if you had a bakery, I think, I think there actually is a scene where they go into the walk-in yes, and the, the dough is like proofing, but it's true that, they have, they show them making the whole process. They, so yeah, it, it's no, it's not at all realistic. Not at all realistic. <laughs> this feels so, and, I and, feel so vindicated because all my friends are like, oh, calm down, get over it. I'm like, no, you, you and, can't make a croissant on a date. <laughs> and not only that, not only that, um, they wanted, they didn't want, they wanted it to be pen or chocolate, but they wanted them to look like a regular croissant. So right. I had to make that happen because nobody makes a pen of chocolate. It had to have chocolate in it and it had to be the normal crescent shaped croissant, not a pen wow, of chocolate. That's shape. a lot of work. So, so I had to, I didn't actually, um, I actually bought like boxes and boxes of dough from Maury Rubin who mm -hmm. used to own City, City Bakery. Bakery. I was going to mention City Bakery when you were talking about the place that used to work, the commissary. Yeah, because uh, it sounded similar in terms of like having that in salad some, bar with all that stuff. Yeah. Well, it's not it's not exactly this. Yeah, it wasn't exactly it, everything was behind a counter. You would put your tray on it on the rings and the okay. people would make the salad for you. Toss the oh, salad nice. okay. more more like some of these salad places now. But it was just greens with mustard vinaigrette or, you know, whatever. So you didn't do anything yourself. Um, 
but uh, yeah, so the croissant, I, I had to make all of those from, I, I, I like bake them mostly in my small New York City kitchen <laughs> using Maury's dough. Um, so my kitchen was just like covered with croissant because I had to have tons of, um, you know, the actual scene we, we shot at, at Sarah, Sarah Beth's bakery in mm -hmm. Chelsea Market. That's okay. where we shot that scene. So she, for that, she pretty much did all the prep and had, cause she had all of the doughs and all of, you know, everything. So yeah, it wasn't at all realistic. Okay, I have to ask you now, though. I mean, so many movies that you worked on like are iconic. Like, I mean, Julie and Julia, incredible. Um, Eat, Pray, Love. So can you talk a little bit about how that aspect of your career began and what that was like yeah. for you? Sure. Um, well, you know, part of the reason I wanted to leave my job at Martha is just because I wanted to be able to do other things. So after 12 years, I left that job in 2003. And... Uh, started, I wrote a book, my first book, and then I started just uh, freelance food styling when that didn't turn out the way that I hoped. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, because that was the thing I just could lean back on as like, oh, I can just go right out right now, make a day rate, you know, more than trying to like write or do anything like that. Um, so, um, so that's what I was doing. And then uh, a couple of years into that, I'm trying to think. My book came out in 2005. I don't know. We probably, I probably got a call in like 2007 or something like that. Uh, directly, again, directly from Nora Ephron, who Amazing. called me up. Yeah, and I, I honestly thought it was a friend playing a joke on me because it was like, <laughs> "Hi, this is Nora Ephron." I'm like, "Come on, <laughs> come on, <laughs> Andy." Yeah, I that's a pretty good you. call to get. Yeah. Yeah, and and she was like, I. She said, I tried to email you, but it kept bouncing back. So I, she said, I was feeling bad that you didn't respond. And I was like, <laughs> she, she really did say stuff like that. And um, and then she said, you know, I'm working on a movie about Julia Child and you want to work on my movie. So I was just like, yes, of course I do. And a couple of people had recommended me to her. One was Amanda Hesser and one was Ed Levine. Oh and my God. these are people because, that I know. Yeah, yeah cause like both of them, I think she was sort of talking to when she was working. I mean, obviously, Amanda is actually in the movie. Yes. She has a scene in the movie. I feel and, like Ed, and, Ed and, is in one of her movies, too. Maybe I'm well, wrong. he might be an extra at Dina DeLuca. But um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so so Amanda was very important to the story of Julie Powell because she did the article in The Times that um, and the, mm -hmm. that that put Julie Julie Powell's project and book on the map. And I remember that, that period so well because that's when I yeah. started my my food blog was like 2004. 2000, you know, so I kind of knew Julie a little bit, and that's how I met right. Amanda. So it was all very uh, right of that era. But so okay, so that so that's how right. Nora so so to Amanda. You. So both of them. I think she said, "Well, you know, this is the way Nora spoke and and what she said to me. She said, I, I asked." people a couple people who should I should get to do the food for my movie and they all said you so <laughs> so that was it really I mean I know it sounds like it should be more complicated but um so I went to like a little sort of round table meeting that she was having with the the crew that was put in place so far at her apartment she definitely had a very different way of doing things um and I was just like you know I just desperately wanted to do the the project no matter what it involved. I was, I yes. was like in, I was in from the, the moment she asked me, I wanted to do it. So it was just a great opportunity. So for me, like, like, like that's why I wanted to leave my job so I could say yes to things like that. So, but talk about pressure. I mean, okay. For example, I mean, I'm, I'm actually mm -hmm. listening to Julia uh, Child's memoir right now in the car 
And like that iconic moment when she goes to the restaurant in France and tastes the Sol Meunier, if I'm saying that right. Meunier. Um, Meunier. Meunier. Um, yeah. But to like recreate this image. Like, so what was, for example, just like to focus on that for a second. Like, how did you how did you nail that so that it looked so beautiful in the movie? Well, that was actually a very like hairy moment because like many scenes in Julie and Julia, we would sort of pop into some restaurant that we had rented out as a location and we had to just uh, cook in that, you know, for the day. And in that particular one, it was for the day. And she had a guy that she used as the waiter that filleted the fish, which is the opening scene of the, of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was like a guy that I think worked at Eli's restaurant up on uh, 80th and 3rd, because mm-hmm. um, she just lived around the corner. She knew this guy. She's like, you're going to be an extra. She would have a lot of her friends like just be extras in the movie. Um, and he was a little bit more than an extra. And it was like, he's going to fillet the fish. You don't even have to think about it. Okay, fine. We didn't have to think about it. Um, I didn't I didn't think about it. <laughs> and and so we went into um, ironically, it's I'm friends with the owners of this restaurant, which is now Shuka. At the time, it was oh, in yeah. between being Provence and and it's all always been owned by um, uh, Mark Meyer and and Vicky. Um, uh, sorry, I'm just blanking. She's a friend of mine. But anyway, they <laughs> they own they own Cook Shop and and sure. Shuket and all these restaurants and which are fantastic the, restaurants. The, yeah, yeah. At the time. Provence was closed. Vicky Freeman, sorry. Sorry, Vicky, if you're listening. <laughs> um, we're like Mishpuka and everything. That's another whole story. Um, so uh, so we, we pop into what was Provence was going to be 100 acre. I think that's what it was after that or something like that. And, and we didn't think to bring our own pans because we knew that the restaurant was equipped, but they didn't have any nonstick pans and the, the pans weren't seasoned and the Doverful was very expensive. So you're always on a budget with the movie. So I don't know. I think I, I remember going to Citarella on, on Sixth Avenue to, to buy the fish for this scene. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I'll take eight. You know, I didn't <laughs> want to, I didn't want too many because it was like super, super expensive. And yeah. I know that sounds crazy, but that's the kind of, one of the things that helps your decision-making when you're working on a movie is budget. Sure. Um, so I didn't buy that much fish. <laughs> and also normally you cook Solomonier with the skin on, but again, this is like a movie thing, but because there was a certain look that Nora wanted the skin was not on okay? okay and she wanted it to because like I remember when we did like a tryout in the in the kitchen it was like um she was like no I don't remember it having the skin on and you know so there was <laughs> there's always this like way someone kind of remembers something and then you have to even though that's not maybe the right way to do it that's the way you have to do it and make it work so um, so basically the fish were sticking terribly to these unseasoned pans and then the fish didn't have the skin on it and oh, no. we didn't have, yeah. So it was really, really hairy and we just like had like one that looked good and, and that's the one that you see on screen. And is Meryl Streep just like sitting there in a costume like, hey, looking at her watch, like where's the fish? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, that's the other thing. You have to like make it happen and not make people wait. That's what, right. That's really like. I mean, you know, talk about like sweating bullets. It's like you just 
have to make it work. Although I think people might have waited a little bit. And the and the thing about the I remember this about the waiter. Like we thought, okay, he's going to be doing the filleting or maybe even the cooking. I'm trying to remember. It's so long ago. And um, and then he just like was in hair and makeup because. So we thought, oh, he's going to come and do this. Oh, that's, I think, what it was. I think we thought he was going to do this because Nora was like, this is my guy. He knows how <laughs> to cook the soul. He's going to do it. And um, I think he was actually a cook at Eli's, not a waiter. But he was pressed into service as a waiter uh, in the movie. And then they took him off to wardrobe and and we never saw him. So we were <laughs> like... Man, we got to do this now. So we, it was just something we hadn't really thought too much about. Luckily, it's a simple dish and somehow it, it was, it, we pulled it off. But that's so funny too, because it's like when you watch it in the movie, you really think you're in France. You really think I you're know. watching Julia Child. I know. And it's like, and I used to live near that Citarella. So just the fact that like you got the soul from Citarella and I you're know. in Chelsea Market, it's <laughs> just like, oh, okay. Um, I know. The other scene from that movie I want to ask you about, of course, is the gigantic pile of chopped onions. And, we're, <laughs> and who was chopping all those onions? And was that a nightmare? Um, no, not really. I just had like bus tubs full of onions. But, you know, the funny thing is we were trying to, uh, I think we had soaked them in water so they wouldn't be so like, you know, strong when Meryl had to stand there with a giant pile of onions. We didn't want her to have to cry. But then she was like, no, no, I want to cry. <laughs> <laughs> right, of course. That's method acting, I think. Yeah, she was method <laughs> acting. So um, that stuff like that isn't complicated. It's like, that's that's a typical thing that it's scripted. So you just have to get, you know, I don't know, 50 pounds of onions and just chop them up because, you know, that was like a sight gag, really. And, what was uh, the what was the most challenging um, thing you've ever had to do in any of the movies you've worked on? Was there like one dish or like mm -hmm. one scene that was like... Well, I mean, the sommelier was actually one of the hairiest because by the time we were shooting, Cinderella was like closed. We were It was like a, an evening shoot. So it, we had to make it work with what we had. I had a similar thing with Eat, Pray, Love where I had to do this um, like... Um, uh, squash, 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 fried squash blossoms and the cheese oozing out. And like, it was just, it's usually these really quick things, but it's like when, when the food has to really kind of perform on camera. Um, I mean, it was crazy working in Rome. It was like, we were shooting two scenes at the same time that with a first unit and a second unit. Do you know what that means? So I should, but yeah. Yeah. So the first bit, yeah. unit, <laughs> the first unit shoots the actors and the and the action and the people. And then a lot of times the second unit will shoot like close ups or what right. they call inserts. So um I had a scene where and these are not supposed to happen simultaneously because usually you need to see the first the first unit so you can match it and you know make sure that there's continuity so in mm -hmm. this but but because of the 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 vagaries of of crazy location shooting in Rome and other you know everything's constantly getting canceled and postponed and so we were near the end of the schedule and um so we're shooting the act actors in one in one scene at a restaurant and they're like oh it's only 200 meters away and i'm like i don't really know how far a meter is like you keep <laughs> saying meters and i'm not really sure like i can't like estimate that in my head it might have been more than 200 meters but i would call it at least a block away if not two um and i only had so many squash blossoms because they weren't really in season we had bought all that we could find that morning in rome um it was now evening 
there were no stores that sold squash blossoms at this hour. And so I, I just, I had to go, I was running back and forth between these two locations, like stealing squash blossoms from one set to bring them to the other set. I, it's kind of similar to the Solman year. I just, I didn't have enough and I had to, I had to make it work or I was just going to be in big trouble. Do you ever um, do you like those <laughs> tricks like where like you see sometimes where people are like putting like paint on a hamburger to make it look like ketchup or like do you ever use things like substitutes to make things well look not better? you can't really you can't really do that when actors are eating um, <laughs> right. which mostly is the kind of things I was doing so um, so generally speaking no everyone always loves to hear those kind of things about uh, yeah. Uh, you know, food style, like, oh, you use motor oil. I mean, look, <laughs> people do use those things in certain situations. I have never been the kind of food stylist that does a lot of fakery um, uh -huh. because mostly editorial stuff or, you know, if you're doing cookbooks or magazine stuff, mostly that's just real food. And there are times with advertising and also in the olden days where, you know, I mean, turkeys are kind of a different story, but sure. even with turkeys, I don't, I'm not like someone who paints turkeys, but people do it. And it makes people, people so it. insecure at home because our turkeys never look like the ones on the magazine covers because they're <laughs> Thank God. not painted. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we, this like flew by and I, I want to make sure we get oh, uh, more, yeah, more about yeah. your book. This is so fun. Sure. Um, is there any, if you were going to recommend to people who are buying your cookbook to start out with any particular recipe, I mean, are there certain ones that you're most excited about? Wait, or the ones why did, why do I not have my cookbook oh, yeah. in front of me? Hold on, well, it's right here. We got it, okay. I mean, I'm yeah, very I curious. I, I watched Top Chef this season and one of the contestants yeah. made tomato water as like sort uh -huh. of thing. And when I saw yeah. this in your book and like the technique for it is fascinating that you like, you put like, there's a picture of tomatoes on a sheet tray that went into the freezer. Right. And so is right. that sort of how you do it? You blend them from the Well, freezer? there's a lot of different ways to do it, but um, a lot of them are definitely overly complicated. And also like, you have to make this now. So I just did a lot of research and I realized that um, you could just freeze the tomatoes and which means you could freeze all your scraps when you're making heirloom tomato tart, um, which is a great recipe for the summer. And I, this one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, but like when you're doing something like that, you're only using these sort of gorgeous middle slices and you mm -hmm. have like, you know, half the tomatoes left over. Or if you have, um, a really uh, prolific garden, you can just throw all your extra tomatoes in the freezer. And then when you have enough, you make the tomato water, which tastes fantastic. And yeah, I have two recipes for it with the tomato water lemonade. And also the, um, there's like a salad with watermelon and cucumber and tomatoes and tomato water. And it is, I'm telling you, like, it's the, you know, freshest taste freshest and most refreshing thing you've ever eaten yeah and that's the so thing good. is like on top chef padma was like going crazy over tomato water and i was just like what is the deal with this so when i saw it in your cookbook, and it looks really like nothing it looks yes. like her, but it's right. so much flavor so i highly recommend trying that if you haven't done it before um yes. and what a good yeah. solution visually to instead of taking a picture of the tomato water you have a picture of the tomatoes right. on the freezer tray <laughs> that are also right. beautiful um and i don't usually do that but in this case i thought they a, it looks so cool, and I couldn't yeah. really get a good shot of tomato. You might notice everything is overhead. I didn't talk about that when you were asking me about iPhone. So because of like the distortion of iPhone, you pr pretty much are limited to overhead shots. 
to have okay. them looking looking this what, good. What's I the distortion? I don't even know about mm -hmm. that. Well, try it. If I tried to like take a picture of this glass of water, it would just it would be hard. And mm -hmm. it's just it's just well, first of all, I like that angle. I like overhead because you really can see the food, and I think it looks beautiful and it's more graphic. But um, mm -hmm. it's just trickier to shoot in with because it's almost like a fisheye lens yeah. the, uh, and it, it distorts things. So you just have to take my word for it on that. But, but so that was my solution on the tomato water lemonade. And I wanted people to see visually what the process was, yes. but I have, I don't know. I mean, I really have a lot of great recipes in the book that I love. So the one, the one that I, I think I'm going to make first is going to be for a dinner party. I want to make the one with the eggplant and the pasta in the pan at the same oh, time, yeah. which is such it's a good great. idea. It looks like it's eggplant so parmesan, but like with like pasta inside the same. Um, it's really good. Pan. It's yeah. really good. I, in fact, I had a piece that I'd stuck in the freezer when I had COVID last week. Um, oh, <laughs> and it was really very good. satisfying. It was very good uh, comfort food. I mean, you know, the pasta gets a little bit softer than it would if you were just cooking pasta al dente, but I love that dish. I've made it a number of times really good yeah, perfect cool, for a dinner party yeah because when i was reading the recipe it's like you put dry pasta in the pan yeah. but just coat it in sauce so i guess it cooks in the sauce which is it, it's pretty great cool. yeah it's really it's really fun dish um well every podcast begins with what did you have for lunch but i end every podcast with what are you having for dinner tonight oh gosh i have no idea my husband <laughs> is in the city and i haven't even thought about it oh my god Okay, well, no, but we have to put you on the spot. We're gonna like push it a little further. So you're gonna push I mean, it a little further. Yeah, like what? What about... is like like what wouldn't be a normal dinner like on a weeknight? Um, uh, I mean, do you, do you do you usually cook every night or do you... I do, I do. But when my husband is not around, sometimes I'll just like make a turkey burger, something really basic. Really? Yeah. Okay, that's good to know. So just you keep um, <laughs> like turkey. Is it like turkey meat that you have in your fridge and you're like? Well, I make like this. I make like this um, kind of a mixture to make the turkey taste a little bit better, and then I freeze them. So it's sort of like one of my emergency meals. So I I put like ground up cauliflower and onions and herbs and all kinds of things in the turkey. So I actually really enjoy it. It's sort of like my little private comfort food. So. That's great. I mean, I don't think anyone here has ever like mixed cauliflower and turkey together and frozen it. So that's a good little tip. Uh, well, Susan, this was a delight. And I'm so glad I got to talk to you. And congratulations on your book. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. And this was really lots of fun. All right. Well, have a good rest of your day. Enjoy okay. those turkey burgers. <laughs> Bye. Bye, Adam. All right, that's it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please write a nice review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference. If you want to keep up with me and what I'm cooking and eating, give me a follow on social media at Amateur Gourmet. You can find me on Instagram, on TikTok, on Threads, which is, I guess, the new Twitter, but I'm still on Twitter too. And if you want to get my newsletter, head over to amateurgourmet.substack.com. All right, I'll see you back here next week. Have a good one. Oh, and don't forget to eat lunch.